0: Um, this evening, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn back to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to pick up where we left off. This morning was a tough sermon. I, um, and you guys didn't even get all of it. Maybe that was God's providence protecting you from everything that I studied this week. It was a tough sermon to talk about God disciplining us as children, that we should want it. I remember um, that we should look forward to it. There's a lot to unpack there and a lot that I wasn't able to preach on. I want to trust God in that and we're going to move on. I want to pick up in chapter 14 or verse 14 of chapter 12 and I want to look at the remaining 15 verses. Now again that's a very big section of of Scripture. We are covering a lot of ground. We're moving fast through the end of the book of Hebrews. I keep telling myself that it's alright we're moving so fast because it's my favorite book in the New Testament and um, I'll be able to go and preach through it again sometime. But we can't go as slow as I'd like to, so we'll look at these 15 verses. The Bible says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. You may have noticed our sermon this morning ended at verse 13, and we're picking up in verse 14. That's a strange place to break off a section of Scripture. The ESV and other translations that attempt, translators attempt to put this in a paragraph format um, normally put the paragraph break between verse 12 and verse 17. We're snacked at in the middle. If you're looking at a Bible that has the, the Scriptures in a paragraph format, you should be asking yourself when the preacher ends a sermon at verse 13 and begins in verse 14, has Brother Derek lost his mind? I want you to see first how connected these things are. We ended this morning talking about church discipline and the necessity of discipline. There's another side to that. It's not just running. It's not just moving with zeal. But ultimately, what we're working towards is rest. I put the divide in this passage between verse 13 and verse 14 because that's where I see us move from running To rest. This evening, I want to focus on rest. We begin then with the command in Scripture to strive for peace with everyone. To strive for peace. And I believe the emphasis is especially on those within the church. In the sense of church discipline, this is the point, isn't it? When we talk about disciplining one another or looking after one another, it's that there would be peace among Christians. Certainly, the application is much broader. Certainly, the application should be extended to all people. Christians should be peaceable no matter where they're at because it's a a profitable thing to pursue peace. But the emphasis is definitely between Christians. One point that I want to make in verse 14, we see strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I know some of you are using the King James Version. Hopefully, we have other Bible translations floating around. There's one thing that English isn't able to pick up on that the Greek does a fine job of emphasizing here. I won't dive too much into the nerdiness of it. But striving for peace and holiness are not separate phrases. In English translations, we want to say strive for peace and strive for holiness. But the Greek puts these two words side by side. Strive for peace, holiness, because they are connected. And this is the point that we should take away. To strive for holiness or to be set apart by God is partly indicated by the fact that we are a peaceable people. What makes Christians so remarkable, so holy, so set apart for God that people are able to observe their holiness? We're able to observe it because they live at peace with one another. Where else in the world do you see that? Where else in the world do you see peace among different people with different backgrounds? Paul uses repeatedly the illustration that the church is to be made up of slave, free, Scythian, Greek, male, female, rich, poor. All these people are living at peace with one another. This is a hallmark. This is a mark that indicates the authenticity of the church. This is a mark that indicates that the church is the real deal because they're notably different because despite all of the differences that exist between them, they are at peace with one another because they strive for peace with one another. The warning falls that without which... Without striving for peace, without holiness, without being set apart from God, if you look at verse 14, no one will be able to see the Lord. Now, this is a stirring and provoking phrase and commandment. It comes not just with the command as to what we are to do, but it also comes with a promise. Assumingly, or implied by this text, if we strive for peace and we live holy lives, then we will be able to see the Lord. Now, this is all connected to what Jesus said in Matthew 5.8 that no one has the right to expect that a vision of God will be given to them without meeting the qualification. Because Jesus said that the pure in heart will see God. In order to see God, we must have a pure heart, striving for peace, living holy lives. Verse 15 begins, See to it, see to it. An interesting word. <clears throat> Normally we would expect to say, hey, make sure that you do this. But in verse 15, the text says, see to it that. The word here is episkopos. Episkopos. Now why am I jumping into the Greek? Am I here just to waste your time or pull your leg? You guys have heard of Episcopalians, Right? You've heard of Episcopalians, so named, because in an Episcopal church, they believe that there should be a bishop or an overseer over multiple churches. It's a reference to the way that the church is structured. In the Bible, there's three words for pastors that we commonly refer to the office of pastor. Poimen, episkopos, and presbyteros, elder, bishop, or overseer, and shepherd. The word episkopos means overseer, bishop, someone that watches over a long group. In verse 15, when our author says, see to it that, he is saying that you have a responsibility to oversee the church members that you live in community with. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Make note that while I said that this is a word that commonly refers to the office of pastor, the command is given to the whole church here. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That means your job as a church member is to be an overseer of your fellow church members, making sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What does that mean, obtaining the grace of God? To obtain the grace of God, I think, could mean two things. First of all, it could mean being able to experience forgiveness. Second of all, it means pursuing forgiveness. Because forgiveness is always a two-way street. Rarely have I ever been in a mediation or an issue between two different people where there's a problem, and I've come in as a neutral third party, and I've said, well, it's very plain and clear here that this person is the one who is the problem. They need to apologize for everything that they've done, and the problem will solve itself. Marriage counseling, fights, uh, and the youth group, those are the best. Hardly ever is there a one-sided problem. The same can be said about issues in the church whenever we need to bring up church discipline. same can be said about the church. Rarely when somebody needs to be confronted because of a sinful issue or a habit or because of a particular action or a way that they said something, is that the only person that needs to say that they're sorry and repent. More often than not, true reconciliation, making sure, being an overseer, making sure that no one one fails to obtain the grace of God, means being willing to say sorry yourself. And that's normally where it begins. Because once the air is clear on your side, then you can truly restore someone. Verse 15 goes on that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Now here's an important point for anyone that would say that church discipline results in more damage in the church than actually helping it. Because the warning is that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. This is the warning. Here's what happens when you neglect church discipline. Here's what happens when you neglect to confront somebody who has offended you. Like a bitter plant, it sprouts a weed. Think of it like this. Walking on a wooden deck. We had a deck in Bella Vista, and we were poor when we bought that house. We were poor when we sold that house, actually, but we were poor when we bought that house. If I would have taken better care of the property that God gave us in Bella Vista, I would have had that deck stained the second year that we lived there. I did not have it stained. And so after five years of living there, we had wooden boards all over the place that were warping and pulling up. So once a year, normally the beginning of spring when we wanted to use our deck, I would take my framing hammer out and I would go out there and I would pound as many nails as I could find. But we always made sure to wear shoes when we went outside. Because like a bitter root, those nails would come back up. Just waiting for somebody to step on them, that their feet might be ripped open. Connect this analogy to the church. When we fail to practice loving, meaningful, biblical church discipline, a bitter root sprouts forward and it causes trouble waiting for somebody to step on a nail that hasn't been hammered into the ground. As we look at the command to make sure that no one is able to fail meeting or to make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace that God of God, let me ask a simple question: What is the limit of God's grace? Does it have any limits? Does Paul write in Ephesians chapter four, "What is the depth? What is the height? What is the breadth of your love?" His grace abounds more than we could possibly understand. It is given to us in an abundance, an insurmountable, an untappable amount of grace is poured out to His loving children. What is the limit of God's grace then? Because I would say there is a limit to it. It's how much of it are you willing to accept? How much of it are you willing to embrace? It's all there for the taking. Will you take it? Such is the grace of God. What do you mean by that? How much are you willing to? Well, if you apply it to church discipline, then it's how much are you willing to forgive somebody? How much are you willing to accept somebody's forgiveness towards you? Or are you going to leave things unturned and leave secrets and make it turn into a bitter root so that it would come up and it would always be a festering problem that you never talked about? Galatians 5.4 says, You were severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. 2 Corinthians 6.1 says, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. The command to make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, I believe, is in the sense that Paul has already used it in Galatians and Second Corinthians. First, either falling away from grace because you adopt a legalistic perspective, that you think that you are unable to simply ask for more grace that is given to you in abundance, or, as he uses it in 2 Corinthians, to say that you are accepting God's grace in vain because you go for it with all the wrong motivations, that it simply might cover up sinfulness. Notice verse 14 comes before verse 15, that we're supposed to strive for peace and holiness first. To obtain grace, to seek grace, would mean that we've already sought to be a people set apart by God, to be holy. That there would be no root of bitterness springing up. Because by such roots of bitterness... Many have become defiled. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to read two verses, verse 29 and verse 30. But first, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 points to the Lord's Supper. Some of you that have been in the church for a while know that this has been a recent issue, somewhat recent issue. It's a year past, so I can talk about it now. I'm allowed to use it in sermon illustrations. I somewhat haughtily made a point to talk about why the church practices the Lord's Supper the way that we do. And there was disagreement. You don't have to say this out loud, but think to yourself, do you think the disagreement was handled in a biblical way or an unbiblical way? Did we take care of a bitter root and make sure that it's not going to come back up again? If I'm honest, in my opinion, I think we could have done a better job, but I think the issue is solved on its own now. The reason for it, with the same warning as being becoming defiled, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine verse 30, as a warning for those who would participate in the Lord's Supper, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, this is the King James, eat and drink damnation upon themselves. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Paul makes a connection with the physical sufferings and ailments of this world with being able to discern the body of Christ and the blessing that comes from her. In fact, I, there's no question in my mind that those who have spiritual foresight, those that have the spectacles of faith on, those that believe what God has said in His Word, that the sickness that we see in some instances is a consequence of un. Uh, Not being in the right heart condition to participate in the Lord's Supper and going forward and participating in it anyway. What do you mean by discern the body of Christ? What does that discern mean right there? Who is in Christ and who is outside of Christ. I believe it's a, a, a sobering warning. It can be sobering when you think you've reconciled with somebody and you suddenly see them become sick. And it causes questions in your mind whether or not you should trust the reality of this person's forgiveness. Or if they are simply sweeping problems underneath the carpet. In such situations, our confidence must be in the abundance of God's grace. To trust that if we have done what we need to do to strive for peace, that we should not also be the one who brings the problem back up, but that we should remain humble and ready to repent if anything is brought to our attention in our own failing. That we might be ready to also extend grace to someone who may have wronged us that they can receive that abundance. Verse 16 goes on, "...that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." Now those of you interested in this, go scour the Old Testament and find the place in the Bible where you find a recorded instance of Esau in tears. Hopefully you're better at studying the Bible than I am. I couldn't find it. I checked with some folks. It's not to be found, except in this passage that Esau sought repentance or a chance to repent with tears after selling his birthright. The connection here, I believe, between being sexually immoral and being like Esau is simply being a person who is godless. No one being sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. This is the warning. This is why we're called to be overseers, because it's so easy to be caught up in the world in which we live. It's so easy to, like Esau, put our attention on what is right in front of us, that one meal that would give us satisfaction, and to ignore what lies ahead, an inheritance that belongs to us as a birthright. As a Christian, our perspective goes forward past our own lives and into eternity. We seek what is beyond. We do not negotiate. We do not capitulate. We do not succumb to simply meeting the earthly satisfactions that are before us. I said that the focus of these next pass or the verses that we've just looked at, are on rest. And it seems like all I've done is preach more on church discipline. Well, this is the beauty of it. When practiced consistently, church discipline results in no longer having to strive for peace with one another, but being able to enjoy peace with one another. Church discipline results in what should only be considered a utopian depiction of the nature of the church. And by the way, if you're reading your Bibles, the nature of the church should look a lot like a utopia because it's God's kingdom. It is a utopia. Perfect, without blemish. The connection is found in verses 18. As we look not just at the state of rest, but the state of refocusing that we have, not being like Esau, a godless person, but rather pursuing what lies before us. Because we find that, by the way, Bubba's interested in Spider-Man, which is a very exciting phenomenon in our home, so let's take a break for a second and celebrate that. And in the words of Uncle Ben, "...with great privilege comes great responsibility." Because as a Christian being adopted into this kingdom of heaven, we have a great responsibility. Our author compares and contrasts the old covenant system, the nature of Israel whenever Moses was on Mount Sinai and the covenant of God was being extended to the people of Israel. He he makes a reference here to the fear that befell the Israelites as they told Moses, have God not speak to us anymore because what man has heard God and lived? We can't hear him anymore. For you have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This allusion makes reference to what's written in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 23 through 27, where the Bible records, "...as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me." All the heads of your tribes and your elders, remember this is Moses speaking to the Israelites, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and greatness, and we have heard His voice out of the midst of fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more. We shall die for who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived. Go near and hear that all the Lord our God will say and speak to us, all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. Our Sentence begins, but you have come, for you have not come to what may be touched. The verb, for you have come, is a verb in the accomplished, perfect tense. To say that we have come to a place that we cannot touch, what what the author of Hebrews is making reference here to is that we have come to a place that we cannot touch, no longer an earthly Jerusalem or an earthly promised land, but a heavenly one, a heavenly fulfillment of all of these things. Saying in verse um, verse 23 that we've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You have come. The perfect tense carries with it weight that is unmeasured. It means not only that this is something that has been completed, but this is something that is continually taking place. To walk with God on earth as Esau did, to walk by faith, means that we are continually coming to God continually dwelling with Him, continually experiencing heaven. And loved ones, if we understand the church, this kingdom that cannot be shaken that the author makes reference to is the church. It is the gathering of the saints, an unshakable community. It is God's kingdom. You have come, which means it's been accomplished and it's continuing to be accomplished. Now look at the list that he gives us of the things that have been accomplished. First, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels and festal gatherings. Just a side note, because it's the evening and I enjoy being a provocative Baptist, there are those that would say that this is the depiction of the universal church. As a Baptist, we reject the universal church um, because we believe that the church is the local called out assembly of God. I want to point out that this festival gathering in heaven is local to heaven. Ha ha. A festival like a like a celebration and to the innumerable Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in the festival gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all. We draw near to God, as Hebrew, the author of Hebrews has already said, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, those who have been sanctified and are walking with God, those who have strived for peace, who have been made holy, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant that we have entered into by the sprinkled blood. the spe- That speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, many of these things I'm not going to belabor or spend a lot of time on because we've preached through the whole book of Hebrews, so you should see how this argument is developing as we look at a greater sacrifice, a greater high priest, a greater mediator, all of these different things. But I do want to make note of the phrase that says, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because this is universally true of God's extension, His his offer that has been extended out into humanity when He says that this better sacrifice is a better word than the blood of Abel. By comparison, the blood of Abel, that which we already looked at in Hebrews chapter 12, the blood of Abel, God said, calls out from the ground for vengeance. God knew that Abel had been slain by his brother because his blood cried out for vengeance from the ground. Abel's blood condemned the wicked. It shut them out. But the blood of Christ even though He was slain in a similar way, even though He suffered scornfully and mocking all of the things that He suffered at the hands of His own creation, His blood does not shut the wicked out. But it calls the wicked in. It brings them in. It draws them in, speaking a better word that they could be a part of the community, that His blood could cover their sinfulness. God's kingdom will endure for all time. It will endure for all time. I struggle with this. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but... On the topic of church health, it seems like our church has been heading in the opposite direction. I wonder why. Consider the issue of church discipline. How many church members do you think are on Denver Street Baptist Church church roll? I tallied it up just a few moments ago, 189. I made a few corrections. There are at least 3 people that I've been a part of their funerals for. In May, this past month, our average church attendance was 31. But our church roll has 189 people on it the month before our church average attendance on sunday morning was 34.4 but our church roll had 189 members on it our highest church attendance since i've been here i came in 2020 was 88 on easter sunday in 2022 I have to ask, when we look at the kingdom of heaven, do we believe that it is so real that we're a part of it now? I don't ask that just to provoke you or just to make you um, agree with me. Maybe it doesn't help my case at all, and that's fine too. Do we believe that we are a part of the kingdom of heaven now? That we have a responsibility to be overseers for those that we have been called into community with. Do we care about the 189 people that we cared enough to write their names in a book? Or are we okay with them not being here? Are we okay with them having moved away however many years ago and never joining another local New Testament church? Because if you cared about somebody that moved away and you haven't seen them in a while, and you really did care about them, what I think you would actually do is you would call them and you would say, are you having difficulty finding a church? And if they were having difficulty finding a church, maybe you'd be spurned even further for the kingdom of God to call the missions office and say, why don't we have a church planter in that part of the country? And then when they say, because the laborers are few, perhaps even your heart would be said... Well, we already know we have one church member there. Why don't we send three or four more? And we'll give them a church to go to. The way the kingdom of God is supposed to work is that we're supposed to care about one another. What makes the new Jerusalem so remarkable? What makes it unshakable? Notice that he's making reference to things that you cannot touch. Verse 18, things that you cannot touch. What can you not touch but your relationship with the people that you've been called into a community with? It is unshakable in the kingdom of God. You are brothers and sisters, irregardless of whether you would obey the commands of Scripture. Your relationship is unshakable. What makes the new Jerusalem so amazing? That we're not going to have any struggle living in peace with one another when we're brought into glory. What makes it so remarkable is that God's comfort is going to be upon us as we look at this festal gathering, being able to celebrate everything that God has given us. Our, do we believe that our, our relationships are a part of this unshakable kingdom, or is that just Brother Derek's conjecture into this passage? You'll have to figure out how to apply that to your life on your own. Our command. Our response is not just that we would be able to seek the rest that comes from practicing church discipline, not just that we would be able to refocus all of this, but that we would seek ultimately restoration. Beginning in verse 28, we find, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I do not agree with the translators of the ESV on this point. Hopefully you guys have a better translation than I do. But it's confusing when you look at it. Verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving the kingdom. Now that word, let us be grateful, comes from the Greek word charis, which means grace. Elsewhere, I think this is a normal translation. The one problem is that when you look at how charis, the word charis is used in the rest of the book of Hebrews... It is used in relation to being full of grace. Let us be grateful. I think it would be better to translate it. Let us hold on to God's grace. Let us hold on with all our might. This is a part of making sure that we do not fall short of obtaining it. Let us rely on it with such dependence that our hands don't come off of it. My dad used to take us four-wheeler riding for fun. And when I was a little boy, I would sometimes sit in the front. But as I got too big, that my, I was a fat little boy, by the way. And, and then I grew out of that. But when I was a fat little boy, my dad wouldn't let me ride on the front anymore. And it wasn't my fault that I was a fat little boy. My fat, my dad was a fat old man. So the two of us together, I couldn't sit in the front. And so I got to, I think I was like eight, and I had to start riding on the back. But my dad was a maniac. And I held on with all that I could. Oh, I don't know the direction that God is leading the church. I don't know the direction that God is taking ministries. I don't know the direction that God wants in my life. But you know what I can do? I can hold on with all of my might to a grace that has sustained me up to this point with confidence that it will continue to sustain me. That I can have endurance to run forever, holding on to the grace that has been given to me. A grace that cannot be shaken with such fear that I would step away or let go for a moment because of God who tells us how to worship Him, who tells us the way that the church is supposed to run. Get this through our heads. The church is not a business. church should not look like a business. It should not run like a business. It should not operate like a business. The church is a spiritual organism instituted by the grace of God for people who dwell on earth waiting for the day that they can be in the festal gatherings of angels. And those who want to run it like a business, well, they deserve to be reconciled with. They deserve somebody to correct them and show them what the Bible says. They deserve reconciliation by those who realize it's necessary because when we worship God, we offer acceptable worship for God with reverence and awe, with fear and trembling, with trepidation and confidence that He accepts us even when we mess up. For our God is a consuming fire. That phrase, our God is a consuming fire, I believe is referring to Deuteronomy 4.24. I read Deuteronomy 5 to you a moment ago. But the meaning is that our God is not meant to be trifled with. The reality is it is too easy to be taken up with the simple love and compassion of God. So much so that we overlook his, in, his insatiable opposition to all evil. Because he is a holy God, he stands against evil. The wickedness of our own minds, the wickedness of our own thoughts and desires that we would structure his church after what we want, that we wouldn't do something even though He tells us to do it simply because it might make us uncomfortable. Trusting God means let's hold on and do what makes us uncomfortable because if we're faithful to Him, He's faithful to us. It's as simple as that. Let me pray and then we can have a moment for discussion. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for, God, just thank you for the blessing of putting a Bible in each of our hands, for giving us the ability to go to school that we can say that, God, how amazing is it, God, that we live in a world and a time when people are all around us basically literate. That we can go to your word and that we can rely on your grace and we don't need help to do it other than your help. Father, I pray that you would help us to pursue that. Help us not to fail to apply your word to our lives daily. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.